The scripture today is found in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, starting at verse 13. Brothers and sisters, we do not want you to be uninformed about those who sleep in death so that you do not grieve like the rest of mankind who have no hope. For we believe that Jesus died and rose again, and so we believe that God will bring with Jesus those who have fallen asleep in him. According to the Lord's word, we tell you that we who are still alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will certainly not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will come down from heaven with a loud command, with the voice of the archangel, and with the trumpet call of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. After that, we who are still alive and are left will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will be with the Lord forever. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. Please pray with me. Eternal God, in the reading of the scripture, may your word be heard in the meditations of our heart. May your word be known, and in the faithfulness of our lives, may your word be shown. Amen. Well, good morning. Um, Welcome to worship. I'm glad you're with us today, whether you're here in person or whether you're joining us at home online. Uh, I want you to know that uh, God loves you. God has a plan and purpose for you, and um, I hope that you're blessed today. Before I begin with the message, a couple of things I want to point out real quickly or highlight. First of all, I uh, hope that many of you received a letter from the church office uh, this past week. If you didn't, let us know and we'll get a copy to you. Uh, but uh, the search committee for the director of children's ministry is very excited uh, to unanimously invite Leslie Baker to come. And Kay, this is a picture of, of Leslie and her family. Her husband, Jamie, their three children, Jamie's on the front row and uh, on the right side. Uh, a little bit about Jamie. Uh, she is, they live in Minneapolis. She uh, has a background in public education. She taught in the Smoky Valley School District for quite a while. She most recently was in Minneapolis at the school district. And the last year or two or so, uh, she and, and, and Jamie have traveled around the U.S. doing uh, short-term missions work. And uh, we're just excited about her gifts and her passion and she'll be coming to candidate on February 21st over that weekend. We'll introduce her on the Sunday morning services, uh, have her share a little bit about who she is. And then she'll also have opportunity to meet and greet many of you at a few different events throughout the weekend. So uh, just be in prayer for Leslie and her family and for our church as we approach that weekend. Uh, secondly, just real quickly, I know we've mentioned a couple different times already, but the church app uh, that Dominic Thompson has developed for us. It's fantastic. I encourage you to t- check it out. Uh, there are, there's a place uh, for sermon notes where you can do uh, notes and, and, and different things. You can save them and archive them and all that. But a lot of other cool options as well. So I encourage you to, to, be, to take advantage of that. Third thing before I begin is I, I want to give credit to Pastor Jim Knight. Uh, I, uh, his, his sermon on this passage really inspired me and uh, a lot of the content and stuff like that. I want to give credit to him for that today before I begin. Today we are continuing the sermon series that we kicked off uh, a number of weeks ago called Finding Hope in a Hopeless World. And we are working our way through, through uh, Paul's first letter to the Thessalonians, a small group of believers, maybe 25 at most, who lived in ancient Greece in the city called Thessalonica. And Paul and uh, two of his friends, Silas and Timothy, had helped to start this church, but Paul had not been able to return to them for a couple of years. He was worried about them, so he sent Timothy to check in on them. He also sent this letter with Timothy, and the letter is sent to encourage them to answer some questions that they have, to clear up some confusion about some, some things that they were thinking about. 
but primarily it was there to encourage them to, to hold fast, to stand firm in the faith, to have hope because they were living in a very kind of anti-believer uh, uh, world. Yeah, the, the worldview and the values and the priorities and lifestyle of the people around them, uh, it was, it was all antithetical to what they were believing and trying to live. So Paul writes to them to encourage them to, to hang on there and to have hope. Now, back in 2013, Google made this announcement. I'll read from the announcement. Not many of us like thinking about death, especially our own. But making plans for what happens after you're gone is really important for the people you leave behind. So today, we're launching a new feature that makes it easy to tell Google what to do with your digital assets when you die or can no longer use your account. The feature is called Inactive Account Manager. Not a great name, we know. And you'll find it on your Google account settings page. We hope that this new feature will enable you to plan your digital afterlife in a way that protects your privacy and security and make life easier for your loved ones after you're gone. Now, that might be the answer to the question, what happens when I die, as far as your Google accounts are concerned. But the question I want to address this morning is a question that the people in Thessalonica were also wrestling with. What happens to us when we die or the person we love when we get a phone call in the night or when the doctor says we've done all we can do or when you draw your last breath? Where do we find hope in the midst of this? What happens? Well, Paul gives us the answer, at least part of the answer in First Thessalonians chapter four. And remember, he's writing to these believers and they're wrestling with what was going on in their world. And being a follower of, of Christ was very dangerous for them. There was a world of persecution and, and it cost some of them their lives for their faith in Christ. It continues to cost the lives of many believers around the world even today. So regardless of whether death comes through illness or through a body that's worn out with age or through an act of violence... Paul says, let me tell you about what happens when you die. Let me clear up some questions for you. Uh, any, any, so let's pick it up in verse 13. Brothers and sisters, we do not want you to be ignorant about those who fall asleep or to grieve like those who have no hope. So Paul begins with two Negative statements. There are two things that he does not want for us. First, he doesn't want us to face death without hope. And he doesn't want us to be confused about happen, what happens after we die. So he wants us to, to, to be clear on this. He wants us to have truth. Now, knowing truth is essential in all areas of life, right? Uh, truth is important because it establishes trust and relationship. Truth uh, motivates us to, to live our lives differently when we get new knowledge or information about something. Truth allows us to, to serve and, and to move and, and, and live and breathe effectively. And here truth addresses our fears when we face death. Now this passage as well as the whole New Testament makes a distinction between the body and the soul. And when we ask what happens after we die, we're often asking two separate questions. They're connected, but they're, they're distinct. One is what happens to my soul and what happens to my body? Now, 
the soul is the non-physical me uh, that lives inside of this body. It's my personality. It's my identity. It's a unique person that God has made me. I could have an identical twin. We could have identical bodies, but the soul would be what distinguishes us from each other. Now, several passages make it clear that at death, the souls of, of believers, of those who trust in Christ, they, they enter heaven. And they enter into the presence of God. And if you're a believer, you will close your eyes on earth and then you'll find yourself in the presence of Christ. And our identity is not lost. You will still be you, but without sin, which is going to be wonderful. Wouldn't that be nice to be without sin? In the book of Revelation, which is the last book of the Bible, there's a description of believers in heaven who have been martyred for their faith. They were killed because they wouldn't give up their faith in Christ. And, and, and these martyrs in heaven, they, they, they have memories. They know what happened. They know how it happened. They know when it happened. And so we retain our memories even after we die. And we're going to know each other after death. So that's what happens to our souls. But the second question refers to our bodies. What happens to our, our physical bodies? And that question is the focus of this passage. Apparently, the believers in Thessalonica were wrestling with this question, like, what's going to happen for those of us who die before Christ returns? And how, how's this all going to work? And, and so they had all these questions. And so Paul, Paul writes to address these questions. And in verse 13, he describes death for the body, not the soul, death for the body as sleep. It's the same language that he uses in verses 14 and 15. Now, the soul does not sleep. Okay, remember, the soul of the believer is in heaven, very much awake. It's the body that sleeps. And, and sleep is a common metaphor for death in, in the scriptures. Sleep is temporary, and death for our bodies is temporary. Sleep is followed by, by waking up. Death will be followed by a resurrection. Daniel 12.2 says this, Multitudes who sleep in the dust of the earth will awake. Some to everlasting life, some to shame and everlasting contempt. So at death, the body sleeps. You know, our word for cemetery comes from the Greek word for sleep. So a cemetery is a place of sleep. When you bury somebody that you love, you're putting that person to bed. And for believers, it is the ultimate beauty sleep. So Paul doesn't want his readers, he doesn't want us to be confused about the truth regarding death. So he wants us to know that followers of Christ have hope beyond grief. Now, he doesn't say that grieving is wrong and that we shouldn't grieve. I was talking to a woman after one of our services already this morning. She lost her husband after many years, lost her husband recently. And she said, grief is grief is a good thing. It allows me to process, allows me to remember, to, you know, it shows the depth of my love for him. Grief is, is, is appropriate. It's, it's necessary. I mean, Jesus himself, what did he do when he's at the, the tomb of Lazarus, his good friend, who has died? Jesus knows he's going to raise him from the dead. But Jesus grieves. It says he wept. But we do not grieve as those who do not have hope. Garrison Keillor wrote this as he reviewed somebody else's book about death. And I don't know if this is his perspective on death or it's simply the perspective of the author. But but this is what he wrote. Quote, 
A man can fear his own death, but what is he anyway? Simply a mass of neurons. The brain is a lump of meat, and the soul is merely a story the brain tells itself. Individuality is an illusion. Scientists find no physical evidence of self. Although not physical, many do find evidence of self. He acknowledges that. It is something that we've talked ourselves into. We do not produce thoughts. Thoughts produce us. The I of which we are so fond properly exists only in grammar. Stripped of the Christian narrative, we gaze out on a landscape that, while fascinating, offers nothing that one could call hope. But that is not us, Paul tells us. We have hope. We have confidence regarding the future. And we have this hope because of of the good news of Christ. And what is the good news of Christ? It's that Jesus died for our sins and that Jesus rose from the dead. Now, in the New Testament, the proof, the resurrection is both a proof and a promise. It's the proof that the Father accepts Jesus' death for our sins. And it's the promise to us that we too will be resurrected. But not like Lazarus. Lazarus was resurrected, but then he died again. Jesus' resurrection is the first of its kind, a resurrection that lasts forever. And because of his resurrection, we will share the same type of resurrection. So what follows in the rest of chapter 4 is when Paul begins to talk about how this is going to take place and gives us some details. It's not everything, but it gives us uh, enough to work with here. And and the first thing he does is he he ties the hope we have, he, he ties it together with the promise of Christ's return. So... Let's, let's take a look in verse 14. We believe that Jesus died and rose again, and so we believe that God will bring with Jesus those who have fallen asleep in him. So those who have died and gone to heaven, their souls are in heaven. According to the Lord's own word, we tell you that we who are still alive, who are left till the coming of the Lord, will certainly not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will come down from heaven with a loud command, with a voice of the archangel, and with a trumpet call of God, and the dead in Christ, those who have died, will rise first. So, what do we take from this? Christ is going to return, but he's not coming back by himself. He's bringing those, those souls in heaven who have gone before, and his angels. Uh, those who are alive still when Christ returns, we're not going to have priority over those who have died. And there's going to be a a universal, authoritative announcement. Nobody's going to miss this. It's going to be very obvious for everybody to see. It's going to involve three things. A loud command. The term is used as a commander calling out his soldiers. Uh, I take it as the voice of Christ himself. There's going to be the voice of an archangel. Daniel writes about different archangels. The only one that's named is, is, is Michael. But there's an archangel also calling out commands, instructions. And there's going to be the trumpet call of God. And trumpets were, were used, uh, commonly used to call people together for an assembly or for celebration, something like that. One version says, one word of command, one shout from an archangel, one blast from the trumpet of God, and God in person will come down from heaven. Jesus, in other words, will return physically and visibly and dramatically. And he's going to return with those who 
have gone ahead who have died already. So our souls are with Jesus in heaven, but they will come with Jesus when he returns and our bodies will be raised and our souls and bodies will be reunited at that point. Now, this is a little bit difficult concept at times. The Greeks, the ancient Greeks, believe that the soul would live on, but the body would not. This is that the soul would live on. And Socrates drank his hemlock and they say he talked about going to strawberry fields forever. Supposedly that's where the Beatles got that line in their song. But the Greeks rejected the idea of a physical resurrection. And so does our culture, right? The soul might live on in many different worldviews or faiths. But the body dies. It's buried. It's cremated. It's done. It's 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 never coming back. But the New Testament gives a very different answer and points to a different reality. Paul says this. He writes about it in First Corinthians 15. Uh, followers of Christ are going to have resurrection bodies like the resurrection body of Jesus Christ. Now think about that. Jesus is raised from the dead in the same body that dies. We know that. I mean, he has scars on his hands and his feet. He, he eats, he, he drinks, he has conversations. Luke says he was, he was as a body of blood and bone and, and flesh. And, and the body that we currently have will be raised again. And there was a lot of confusion about this in the early church. And so Paul in first Corinthians 15, multiple times writes that the body that dies and is buried will be raised again. One way to think about it is the God who created this universe for nothing can certainly reassemble the molecules of our bodies. But they'll be different. They'll be like Jesus' body after his resurrection. Now, we don't know what that means exactly, but a few inferences maybe. I mean, after Jesus was raised, um, people... They, they, they at first didn't recognize him, but then they did. And and uh, he shared meals with them and and he conversed with them. And, you know, he, but he appeared in the middle of a packed room just suddenly out of nowhere. Uh, we, we don't know what it's going to all entail, but our bodies will be different from our physical bodies. Now, the resurrection, what's going to happen, it will transform us and will be um, it'll make us fully and completely alive. In the Disney movie Pinocchio, Pinocchio is a living wooden puppet, and he drowns. And Geppetto, who carved him as a woodworker, woodworker he's, he's heartbroken, and he kneels over this little wooden boy sobbing. And the blue fairy comes, and she speaks to Pinocchio and says, Awake, Pinocchio, awake. And when Pinocchio wakes up, he's no longer wood, but now he's warm flesh. The point is this, what appears to be death is just the opposite. It's death that transforms Pinocchio into one who's fully alive. And that's what the resurrection will do for us. Death will lead us to a state of being fully alive, completely alive. It will take us from our our natural body, which is destined to decay and break down to the resurrected body, which never will. Gary Habermas is a theologian who writes a lot and speaks a lot about the resurrection. And when his wife, Debbie, was 43 years old, she was diagnosed with stomach cancer. Four months later, she was gone. She thought she had the flu. And he writes that during those long four months, he found himself asking, why, God, why is Debbie dying? 
And he felt like God was asking him, did I, did I raise my son from the dead? Of course you did, but why is Debbie dying? Gary, did I raise my son from the dead? Yes, Lord, but Gary, did I raise my son from the dead? We don't have all the answers. Gary Habermas doesn't have all the answers. But he writes that what he knows is this. If Jesus has been raised from the dead, and he has, then I can trust that Debbie will be raised someday too. And if Jesus has been raised from the dead, then so shall we. Verse 17. After that, we who are still alive and are left will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will be with the Lord forever. The original Greek uh, verb here means to snatch up. It says to be caught up in the air, to be snatched up, to be seized up, like with sudden force and and, and in sort of a dramatic way, very sudden. In the Latin translation, uh, from that we draw the word rapture. When Christ returns, along with those who've died, we will be extracted from this planet. We'll be caught up with the Savior in the clouds. And further, those who are alive, who have not yet died, are going to experience the same sort of transformation of their bodies. Paul says so. Listen, these brights, I tell you a mystery. We will not all sleep, but we will all be changed, even those who are alive. We will all be changed in a flash in the twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound, the dead will be raised imperishable, and we will be changed. So both the living and the formerly dead will be together and will be changed into resurrection bodies. But more importantly, we'll be with the Lord forever. Now, from other passages, we see that Jesus is going to return. He's going to establish his rule over earth. And there's a lot of disagreement and debate about what this means and what it'll look like and how it'll happen and when it'll happen and how long it'll take and all those things. But what we do know is that when Jesus returns... He will set up his kingdom in a new heaven and earth and we'll get to be with him as he does this. What an adventure. So we're almost done. What do we do with this? What's the application? Well, Paul gives it to us in verse 18. Therefore, encourage each other with these words. We are to encourage each other with the hope we have in Christ. We are to encourage each other with the the, the hope we have in this promise, with this reality, because we do not mourn as those who have no hope. Now, we live in a world that's afraid of death. We hide death away from, from most of us in hospitals or nursing homes or funeral homes. The writer of Hebrews says, outside of Jesus Christ, Satan held us in bondage out of fear of of death. But in Jesus Christ, we have nothing of which to be afraid. Life today is only the introduction to the life we will experience following death. And it will be amazing. C.S. Lewis describes our current experience as only the cover and the title cover, title page of the book. He says, death takes us to the first chapter of the real story. He referred to our current world as the the shadow lands. 
And since we live in a world damaged by sin, he writes, the world to come is the greater reality. So let's recap before we close. With death, our souls enter heaven. With the return of Christ, our bodies will be resurrected and transformed into bodies like Jesus, a resurrection body. There will be a new heaven and a new earth and we'll live on this new earth with all those who've trusted in Christ and our Savior forever. Now, having said all that, the New Testament emphasizes that that our future should shape our lives in two ways. We're not just to sit back and say, well, you know, almost the whole saying, too heavenly minded to be any earthly good. We are to, to shape our lives today in two ways. We should be characterized by, by self-control. First uh, John 3, 3 says, Everyone who has this hope in him purifies themselves, just as he, Jesus Christ, is pure. So we are to seek to live our lives as best as we can through the power of the Spirit, guided by God's Word, just like Jesus Christ did when he walked this earth. And secondly, we are to pour our lives in service, just as Jesus Christ did. We are to invest ourselves in things which are eternal. God, his kingdom, his values, the people around us. Now, I should emphasize this passage, this this hope, this future that Paul describes, it's for those who are in Christ. What that means is those who have trusted in Jesus Christ, who've trusted in his death for their sins, who believe that he rose from the dead. And so I, I encourage you, if you're listening and hear my words today and you haven't trusted in Christ or you're unsure in your relationship with Christ, I urge you, if you want to share in this hope, if you want to mourn as those who, who have hope, then put your trust in Christ. If you have questions about that, reach out to me. Reach out to someone you know who is a believer. And uh, I would love to, love to hear about that. I want to close with an illustration of a story I've shared before, but I think it's apt for our, our, our text. A woman named Carolyn Ahrens wrote about a missionary speaker who came to a church when she was a child. And the missionary, story, the missionary told a story about a, a giant snake, longer than a human being, who slithered its way into the missionary's house through the front door into the kitchen. Of course, the missionary family, they rushed out in fear, and one of their neighbors, who had grown up there, rushed in with a machete, chopped off the snake's head. But they couldn't go back into the house for, for a couple of hours because the snake was still thrashing around. The nerves were still kicking in, and, and it was thrashing around, doing damage, destroying furniture, flailing against the walls, wreaking havoc until its body finally stopped moving. And Aaron says, that's a metaphor for our world. She says that for the present, we live in the thrashing time, a time of death and terror and disease and, and grief and heartbreak and, and sadness, injustice. She says Satan has been defeated by the cross and by the resurrection. He's been dealt a death blow, but he won't be finally judged until after Christ returns. And in the meantime, he continues to thrash around doing as much damage as he possibly can before Christ returns. But our hope is that Christ will return and we will be resurrected, transformed and fully alive. And the thrashing will stop and death will be no more because we do not mourn as those who don't have hope. So encourage each other. Encourage each other with these words.
Amen. Let's pray. Father, we are grateful for your word. We thank you for uh, the hope that we have in Jesus Christ. Father, in the midst of a crazy world, um, there's so much turmoil at times and there's hurt and pain and grief and loss and Lord, our, our bodies eventually decay and there's so many things that could lead us to despair. But Lord, in Jesus Christ, we have hope. We have hope in the life and the death and the resurrection of Jesus, your son. We have hope in the promise of the life to come. And we have hope in you, Lord. So, Father, help us to be encouraged by these truths, by these promises. Help us to encourage each other. In Jesus' name, amen.